This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. The surgeon said to me, your husband has a tumor on his pancreas. It's malignant. Why didn't you come to see me five years ago? Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside healthcare. This is a podcast where we invite you, the listener, to hear the real stories of clinicians, patients, and caregivers, and the tips and insights that they offer for effectively communicating and navigating through the complex U.S. healthcare system. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and I am pleased to be joined today by Hope Torrens, who is, uh, was the caregiver to her Spanish-speaking husband and talks about her experiences uh, as a caregiver to a spouse who had cancer. Welcome to the show, Hope. Thank you very much, Nicole. Okay, so the surgeon says um, a very shocking statement to you um, that you should have come in earlier. What, what did you say or what happened next? Well, I was a bit stunned, as I was with most of our interactions with this particular surgeon. Um, he actually performed a Whipple procedure on my husband, which was an, is an eight-and-a-half-hour operation in which they take off the head of the pancreas. It's a very complex surgery mm -hmm. because it involves going into where, into the back of the stomach. Uh, there are a lot of organs. There's the liver close by and the bile duct. Um, and they take out the head of the pancreas, they take out the part of the intestine, the spleen. So it's a very complicated surgery. Um, so that's kind of the explanation about what a Whipple is. And um, so it really, the story really started about in about 2008. Uh, my husband had a series of recurrent pancreatitis attacks. He went to his primary care doctor who did some tests and uh, she found out that there was something very wrong. Trying to get my husband back to the doctor was a bit like pulling teeth. He wasn't a real willing participant. He was a very quiet man who was from Barcelona, Spain, um, and he wasn't really concerned with his health. Either that or he was afraid um, to really learn about his health, and I think that was more, more the case. At any rate, he did go back to um, his primary care physician who sent him to a GI doctor. They did discover that he had a tumor on his pancreas, and we were very um, fortunate to know many good doctors in our community who sent us to one of the best Whipple doctors um, around. So not knowing anything about what a Whipple what a Whipple procedure in included, I nor did I know what um, the pancreas was, uh, really. Um, I spoke to a really w um, well-known doctor, a friend of mine, who gave me a lot of information, and uh, he also, you know, I asked him, what do we need to know, really, to, when we go and meet with the surgeon to, um, to f gather more information, and what questions should I ask the surgeon? And he was really generous and gave me a list of about 20 questions to ask the surgeon. So we went down to the day of the, you know, that of our appointment. We went down to the hospital and we ended up waiting three hours in the right waiting room. There was a computer glitch. So by the time we got into the the office where this 
you know, where the surgeon came came into the office. He introduced himself. It was apparent by his body language that he was very cranky, um, and so are we. And so he started asking questions directed at my husband about what was going on, and then I started my line of questions. And midway through the line of questions, he stopped me and said, are you finished asking questions? And a more seasoned me would have said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not. I need to ask the rest of these questions. But I guess at that point, I was finished. Um, So he basically said, here's what's going to happen. We're going to set up a surgery date for your husband. He's going to, we're going to go in and we're going to take out uh, the tumor and we're going to try and discover whether or not the tumor, we're going to discover whether or not the tumor is malignant. I should back up a little bit because my husband had had a biopsy on his pancreas and the biopsy came back and it was um, negative. It didn't show any cancer on his pancreas. So when the doctor, when the surgeon said this, I said, but wait a second, he's already had a biopsy. They, They didn't discover any signs of cancer. And he said, we are going to take the tumor out. We're going to see if the tumor is malignant. And I said, but didn't they already test for that? And mm-hmm. at which point he curtly replied, what don't you understand about what I'm telling you? Uh, um, so so was it wasn't very, the question. It was how, how he said it. It was. Yeah. It, was it, it wasn't, you know, I, I'm sorry I'm not explaining this right. Or, you know, uh, let, me, let me back up a bit. It was just stop talking. Stop asking me questions at that point, and I knew that he was probably tired. Um, but I had also heard um, stories about this specific surgeon, which was that he was very curt. He did his job very well, but it wasn't exactly warm and fuzzy with his patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we were leaving his office, he said to my husband, "Don't whatever you do, don't have another pancreatitis attack." As if my husband had any control over his pancreatitis attacks and they scheduled surgery for August and um, in July my husband did have another pancreatitis attack Mm. and he ended up in the hospital and um, got pneumonia and ended up in the ICU for five days. Mm. He was very, very sick and I felt that he had really hit rock bottom. Um, and he had sort of given up, and it was un- very unlike my husband to to be, you know, sort of to react this way. So I went out to talk to his pulmonologist, who was wonderful, absolutely just a wonderfully compassionate, really good doctor, and I told him, this is what's going on, I think my husband's really, really down. And he went into the room, into the ICU room, ICU room and he said to my husband, I realize you're angry and you have every reason to be angry. So once you're done being angry, what I'd like you to do is get up and sit in the chair over there. And that's exactly what my husband did, and I was forever grateful to that doctor for really saying what he did to my husband. Um, so I, I just I just want to pause for a moment. Um, I want to let our listeners know that we're on Skype. Um, so one of the words you had said, Hope, is when you walked into the room with the surgeon, his nonverbals were, I think you said icky? Was that the word you used? I said, no, I said he was cranky. Cranky, that was, okay. I, I couldn't quite hear it. We, you had cut out at that, right, right at that moment, so cranky, okay. So yeah, just to, the, oh, go ahead. Yeah, the end of the day, it was, you know, three hours that there was right. something going on. It, everything was backed up, and it was apparent that he was just not happy. Yeah. He was tired. Sure, sure. 
Um, so your husband at this point has a tumor in his pancreas, but they don't necessarily know if it's cancer, malignant or not. You have this very long wait um, to talk to a surgeon. You had 20 questions to ask him. He stopped you partway through the questions. Um, your husband ends up having an attack, ends up in the ICU, and it's a pulmonologist who comes in and talks to him and um, addresses his emotional state. Is that a good recap of where we're at? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. so, so what, happens, what happens next after your husband, you said, gets in the chair? So my husband um, eventually got better. He got out of the hospital. Um, my husband always, always went back to work right away after he got out of the hospital, and he was in the hospital many times. Um, I think in many ways his work saved him. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he went back to work, and I happened to be there the day that he went back to work and called the surgeon. And um, I overheard the conversation, and the conversation went something like this. Hello, doctor. Um, I just got out of the hospital. I want you to know that I had a pancreatitis attack. And the doctor said, well, now I can't operate on you because your pancreas is inflamed. My husband paused and he had a very thick Spanish accent and said, I'm chasing my tail here. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. Mm. But then he said, what am I supposed to do? At which point the doctor said, well, I didn't put that tumor on your pancreas. Oh um, I heard this exchange, and we were both <laughs> sort of stunned and stopped in our tracks, didn't really know what to do with that. Um, and then um, he ended up having the surgery three months later um, than the scheduled date. So he did have the surgery. Wait, I, I just want to pause you because that's, that's really profound. So I'm, I'm, you had said initially that your husband was a hard person to get in to see the doctor, correct? That he he has a difficult time going in to see the doctor. He takes the initiative to call the doctor, the surgeon himself, and have this conversation. Do you know what his um, reasoning and and impetus was to to make this phone call? I think he having discovered or have been told that he um, had a tumor in his pancreas, he was anxious to get it out. Um, I think he cared enough about his health at that point to say, I, you know, I need to do something about this. And the surgeon had allowed, so yes, he definitely needed this Whipple procedure, so it needed to happen. Uh, But the surgeon's response was, you know, I didn't put the tumor there and now I can't operate and really it sounds like didn't offer any sort of relief or response to a, your husband's concerns, or B, what the next step would be. Right, exactly. Okay. So what what happens next? So um, I, um, I just want to tell a little story about my husband's sort of sense of humor and who he was. And sure. he, he never really took himself very seriously. And my brother-in-law and sister-in-law came over from Spain to um, be there for the surgery and neither one spoke English at all and so we went down to the hospital we were to be there at 6 a.m. in the morning and uh, we were in the pre-op room and it's you know it's a tight sort of there's a curtain that separates and it was me and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law sitting there waiting for them to take my husband down to the surgery and a really lovely nurse came in and stood at the end of the bed And she said, hello, Mr. Torrance, you're about to have this procedure. 
here's what's going to happen. And she explained the whole thing, and it was very thorough, all in English. And she said to my husband, um, do you understand what's about to happen? And he said, yes, I do. Here's my request. If you just take my brother down first and operate on him before me, and if I see that all goes well, then I'll have the operation. <laughs> I had no idea what he was saying, so he was shaking his head in agreement. <laughs> we were all laughing so hard, and he had no idea why we were laughing. Oh my gosh, that's too so, funny. Um, so he I did have... Yeah. I, I do want to ask a quick question. You said your your husband spoke Spanish, but also English. Um, yes. Did did anyone ever? Because we just did a podcast um, uh, a few about a month ago on health literacy. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, and, and interpreters too. Was he ever asked to ha uh, have an interpreter, or did he ever request to have a Spanish? No, my husband spoke English perfectly. Oh, okay. he, he really did. He spoke. I mean, he he, he did spoke. I, mean, I should say this caveat because. I don't speak medicalese, and neither did he, and so I think, you know, you have a double kind of situation. Now, I must say, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were there, and we had to ask a friend to come in who speaks perfect English and perfect Spanish um, to, when the surgeon was giving us the results of the operation so that she could translate to my in-laws what was going on. Okay, so you brought somebody in. Um, did they ever offer an interpreter? No, did it? Oh, interesting. Okay, okay. So um, your your husband makes a joke and says, "Please operate on my brother first, and depending on how it goes, I'll have the surgery." Um, so did he? He end up having the Whipple surgery then. He did end up having the Whipple surgery. It was an eight and a half hour operation, um, very anxiety producing. Um, we waited in a very very noisy waiting area, um, and it was it was really tough. And I think that. I think everybody knows that you know part of illness and part of um, the process is the waiting, and that's the most anxiety-producing. Not knowing the results, not knowing what's happening, it's all very stressful. Very, very stressful. So um, the surgeon came out after about eight and a half, nine hours, told us that he had um, got the entire tumor, and the edges were clean. So we were really ecstatic at that point. Really happy. So what? Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so then he also told us that they were going to do um, a pathology on the tumor itself, and the results wouldn't be ready for another week. So that's another, you know, another week of waiting, sort of through that um, period. And my husband um, was in, obviously, was in the hospital, which posed a whole different set of problems. Um, the nursing staff was limited. I slept in the sleeper chair, which was incredibly uncomfortable, trying to make somebody, my husband, comfortable, who was so uncomfortable. Um, it was really difficult. At one point, the nurses had put in, or somebody had put in an IV um, drip into his hand, and uh, it wasn't properly put in, so his hand started to blow up. Um, mm -hmm. And when we called the nurse's station, they said, well, she, your nurse is out to lunch. Um, his hand was getting bigger and bigger, so I had to go down to the nurse's station and basically say, please get somebody in there right now. I don't care if our nurse is out to lunch. Um, but, you know, it was this sort of, that's the other thing, you know, the, the sort of balance that you have to um, 
be a, an advocate and you have to be tough in some, at some times, but you don't want to alienate yourself or the patient from the doctors, from the nurses, you know, so that's a, a fine line I think everybody walks. Yeah. Um, and I want to get into that a little bit more too about, you know, what you learned about effective caregiver, some of the struggles you had. So I, I want to get into that. Can you, can you sort of fast forward and tell us, um, you know, what, what ended up happening at the end? Um, well, so the surgeon came in a week later, told my husband that he, uh, the tumor was malignant mm. and that he um, had, had wished that we had come in five years earlier. Mm. And then, um, so then we went to, uh, we were recommended to go to an oncologist, um, which we did, and that was a whole different story. I don't know if you want me to go into this. Um, no. Well, okay. I mean, we can, we can, um, we might talk a little bit more about it. What I, what I'm thinking is, is helpful for the listener. I want to shift um, to talking about you and your caregiver role. Many of us who are listening are caregivers and sometimes thrown into that position um, overnight, you know, or suddenly. And it was interesting when you said that you have to balance being an advocate but not wanting to alienate. Um, I think back to uh, the different moments throughout your story that you've talked about. So you had the appointment with the surgeon, you had the list of 20 questions. He says, you know, are you done? And you had said, now you would have said, no, I'm not done. But back then you said, yeah, you know, that's fine, I'm done. You know, you get this another situation where you have another physician, and or I guess it's the same surgeon, right? Who says, "I wish you would have come," you know, five and a half years ago. Um, you know, so can you tell us a little bit, Hope, about how you responded back then in the moment, and and sort of what you've learned now, all these years later? Yeah. So I, you know, who who chooses to do this? You know, really, who who makes this choice? Um, but if it's thrown at you. Um, I think that because my husband basically became paralyzed when he was given this information that I was, I had to activate and I had to, you know, take, take on this responsibility of finding all of the doctors, of finding, sending scans and reports to different hospitals. Um, and I think in the end, I think um, the oncologist um, and my husband who felt that he should stick with his, these doctors, that, you know, there was no room to sort of search out maybe other doctors, other treatments, which I was doing a lot of. I was doing a lot of the legwork in terms of finding other doctors, even in, out of the state, um, reading all sorts of information on treatments, other alternative treatments. But um, again, the oncologist was rather dismissive of me and mm -hmm. thought that I didn't really know what I was talking about or even if I didn't know what I was talking about, and I probably didn't, I was throwing sort of options out there. And the fact that he was just readily dismissing what I had to say um, didn't endear me to him. So it was a struggle because I wanted my husband to see somebody else. And I think that, you know, it was a conflict. Instead of working with us together, mm -hmm. um, I was his caretaker. And my husband was really relying on me to not just find the doctors or find information, but also relay that information to him, my husband, and try to explain to him as best I understood what was happening with his health. Yeah. So it was a, you know, it was a team effort in a way. We yeah. were, we couldn't be separated. And that's what sort of the, I felt that, oh, you don't, you don't need to be part of this. 
this is just about your husband. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think what I was just having a conversation with somebody who um, was sort of in the opposite, where they were the caregiver to somebody who was significantly older, so in their 80s, and they didn't even look at the patient. They only talked to the caregiver. And it sounds like what you're saying is the opposite, where they only were really trying to, to communicate with your husband, and you're like, no, I'm the caregiver, and I really need to understand and be involved in this process. And, right. it, and it doesn't surprise me at all, given the statistics out there, you know, most caregivers are female, and most that are involved in um, medications, that are involved in going to the doctors, making the appointments, it, again, is, is still very female-heavy and female-oriented um, in, our, in our system. What I'm yeah, here, oh, go ahead. Can I just, can I just one, more, one more short story, um, and backing up before the oncologist, um, he would go, he went to the, he did end up having some treatment. Um, he went to um, have the chemo, and then he had radiation. After the radiation, he came home in screaming pain. My husband was not ever a screamer, but he was obviously in tremendous pain. And when I called the oncologist, he said, I don't understand. Nobody ever has pain after radiation. So he said, you need to call a GI doctor. So I took my husband to the GI doctor, and um, we sat in his office, and the GI doctor was asking him questions, and my husband was responding with yes-no answers. And when the GI doctor left the room for a second, I said, why don't you tell him exactly where the pain is, how often you're experiencing it, please tell him these things. You've been screaming in horrible pain. And he looked at me and he said, because I'm waiting for him to ask me the right questions. Oh, wow. And I thought, this is what he's doing. He's yeah. deferring to the specialists and yeah. waiting for them to tell him what he needs to know. Yeah. So, so, so fast forward, by the time I had six years of this, I started saying, no, this is what's going on with him. And I had no qualms about just jumping in and telling them what I think they needed to know about my husband. So what's interesting is I'm hearing that there was a shift of, you know, you trying to encourage your husband to be empowered and advocate for himself and realizing that it sounds like his perception of the healthcare system was, you know, the same as many people. They're the ones that know the answers. They know the questions to ask. They have the information. And so I'm not going to question what they say. I'm, I'm going to do whatever it is and, you know, just sort of passing over their care. A lot of trust in doing that, right? But passing over their care to the to the clinician, and it sounds like you got to the point though, watching this over six years, to say, wait, wait, no, this this is not going right. These questions aren't being answered. This is not going effectively. And you took it um, upon yourself as his caregiver to to really advocate on his behalf. Is that sort of what yes. you would say happened over time? Yeah, um, that's that's only through you know a confidence in myself that I you know I wasn't an idiot and that I could speak for myself and speak for my husband because I had to. Yeah. Did you have a conversation with your husband? I'm thinking of listeners who have a loved one who is, as you had explained, reluctant to see the physician, doesn't speak up for themselves, believes um, to, to sort of hand over their trust to the physician, which is not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it sounds like there were moments where he could have been asking more questions and could have advocated for himself. Um, I, you know, 
Truly, Nicole, I think that it is such an emotionally charged situation. And I, this is where I feel like there needs to be a, almost a third party who, either a social worker or somebody who is just much more measured. Because it is, you know, the tests and waiting for tests and results and the results come in and you're just, you're, you're just, it is so, there's so much emotion involved. Um, I think it's, it's, it's tough. Um, and we'd all like to think that we're, capable of um, sort of emotionally dialing it back and acting in a, you know, intelligent, um, non-emotional, non-reactive way, but so much of the, so much of what happens, it, it just throws you for a loop and you're not ready for it. So, yeah, I have to ask the question that's on my mind. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of curious to ask. Near the end, did your husband ever have a moment where he confided in you and said, you know, I wish I would have asked these questions, or I, looking back, um, I would have done things differently. Because no. it sounds like you did. Did he ever have that? No, he never did. Um, I think he was a very, I know he was a very proud man, and I think that, you know, it wasn't in, it wasn't his nature, which made it almost doubly hard, um, because he, you know, just wasn't, wasn't that way. I have to say that, um, I did start a, a program at the institution where I work, um, which is all about sort of bringing medical, nursing, physical therapy, psychology graduate students in, having them really slow down um, and take the time because they're not there to save lives. I work in an art museum. They're there to experience together the looking at and discussing of art. These are programs that are happening all over the country, um, trying to hone clinical skills, effective observation, communication skills, um, critical thinking, and doing it in a collaborative way um, that they enjoy, but also it's very rigorous and they get a lot out of it. So while I was dealing with my husband being in and out of the hospital and having all these surgeries and directly dealing with physicians and social workers and physical therapists and all kinds of different doctors, um, it was almost like this is fodder. This is amazing that I'm actually able to be in the petri dish, experience all of this, and then take it back to um, what I'm doing. I never started out with the intention of changing the healthcare system, but I truly believe that our program and programs like this program are chipping away in a little, in a small way, to effectively change what what's what goes on in hospitals and clinics. And I've since been in the hospitals in the last, you know, eight years. I've been in, and I find that there is a, a bit of a difference um, in some of the ways that they communicate with us. And it sounds like you had some good experience with the nurse and the pulmonologist with the way that they they spoke to your husband. So thinking about the work that you do in this institute, and I'm and I. Um, I'm familiar that Stanford and, and some of the larger medical schools and systems are doing this where they're really encouraging their med students to take classes in the humanities. So I'm actually part of a health humanities consortium that um, is really invested in bringing back the humanness, right, the humanities in, in medicine. Um, so what advice would you have for clinicians who are listening um, given your experiences, both good and bad, with uh, being a caregiver? Um, I think that, um, truthfully, that I, I, I understand the constraints on physicians in terms of time, um, but I think that their use of time could be 
much more effective in many cases. In many cases, there are wonderful people out there who look directly at you, communicate with you, ask you if you understand or not. Um, but there are a lot who don't, who sit down at a computer with maybe even their backs to you. Um, so I think that this is a, t a team effort, and I think that in the many ways, um, a physician has to be a participant in, in making the health care for that patient and the patient's family um, much better and instilling a sense of trust mm -hmm. in that patient that immediately um, they need to make sure that the patient hears them and that they, they are heard and the patient's heard by the physician. But I also don't think it happens in one visit. Mm -hmm. I think it takes time and I think it could be over a series of visits and I also truly strongly believe that um, a physician has to be willing to live with a certain amount of uncertainty in their practice and also curiosity mm. and I think that my husband was incredibly compliant anything a physician said my husband said okay and I'll do what you say not all people are compliant not everybody's compliant and so I think they have to be willing to, to negotiate and go back and forth and and that sense of trust right away um, is really important. So I'm hearing you say empathy toward the clinician. So um, I think as patients we all have a hard time being empathic after we wait three hours right, to, to be seen. But I'm hearing you say though that the recognition also that they're running around and trying to see patients and save lives and sort of the complexities. Um, to use their time more effectively, um, but also the trust, so trusting in, um, trusting in the physician, the physician trusting in the patient, um, those are all important. I can't help but wonder if you had to, looking back, how important would you say effective or ineffective communication from the part of the physician affected your husband's overall care? You know, I'm not sure if you mean, um, would do I think that if the communication element had been better, would he have improved or? Yeah, do you think his care would have been different if the physician's communication had been more effective? The surgeon uh, specifically. Yeah, I do. And I mean, I, I one shining example is when after the oncologist found out that my husband actually developed a, a, a an ulcer, from the radiation, and that's why he was in such tremendous pain, the oncologist said to my husband, well, I'm not gonna do any more treatments, so bye-bye. Oh. Um, and it wasn't until five years later that his general practitioner said to him, because he had excruciating back pain, you need to go back to the oncologist. You need to um, go back, and because this could be cancer. Mm. And when he did go back to the oncologist, the first thing out of his mouth was, after not seeing my husband for five years, was, what the hell are you doing back here? Oh, goodness. Um, so, you know, that kind of, <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, there were so many incidents. There were, you know, I, I shouldn't say this is, they were all horrible. He had a wonderful infectious disease doctor who would come into his room, sit on the bed, draw pictures for him, explain mm. to him what was going on. You know, he was wonderful, and there were many doctors that were just really compassionate and, you know, truly wonderful. Yeah. Um, but those stark, you know, sort of not great exchanges really made a difference. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, you can't help but not feel, if I'm feeling so stressed and so worried, he couldn't help but not feel that. If I had, maybe if I had felt, here, I've got your back all the way through this, we are going to communicate and we are going, you are going to know exactly what's going on, maybe I would have been much calmer and projected that sense of calm to him, which might have made a huge difference. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I want to switch now and have you talk about your insights. You had six years of being your husband's caregiver, having met with, it sounds like, a myriad of specialists, um, going through the emotional roller coaster of his diagnosis and treatment and his um, eventual passing. What can you suggest to the rest of us? who are caregivers, what what are some insights that you've learned over the years that you can share with us? We've, we've already heard a, a number of things that you've addressed um, in terms of empathy and team, um, but if there are some specific things that you could offer for us, um, what would they be? Um, I think it's important to find um, people that obviously are knowledgeable um, and but also have that sense of compassion, have that sense of, wait a second, I can ask this question because I really don't understand and know that there will be feedback, know that you will have that from your care, you know, the, the healthcare provider. Um, I think doing homework as much as possible, gathering, inf- gathering information is really important. Of, of course, there's a lot of information out there that is misinformation, um, not correct information, but I think it's the job of the caretaker. It's overwhelming, truly. It really is a full-time job. And I had, you know, I have three children. I had a house. I have a job. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of juggling all of this. um, And, you know, there are questions, lots of questions. And so feeling comfortable enough with that person to say, I do have these questions, whether it's the doctor himself, the surgeon, or if it's somebody else who who knows a social worker or a nurse even um, a lot of the information that I got came from the nurses um, because they spend the most time with that patient so I think it's really important to develop that sense of camaraderie if you yeah. will that sense of we, we can do this together we're here to help you yeah I heard you say so this this is an interesting question that comes up for people um, how soon do I doctor shop? Because I, I'm hearing you say, you know, find somebody who's compassionate, who listens, who you can work with, and how, but also understanding that it takes time to develop that relationship and that trust. So looking back at your experiences, how long did you stay with somebody before you sort of try, you know, picked up and found someone else, or what type of research did you do to find out if somebody was an effective communicator? Do you know what I mean? So how did you go about that process? Um, I guess a lot of it has to do with your gut, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I don't know. If that, you can, Obviously, everybody's gut is different. Yeah. Um, um, but I, I truly believe that because of my work, because of what I've been doing, I had developed a high sense of... Um, radar to those who were and those who weren't Um, maybe that's not the case for everybody but I pretty much was able to discriminate um, as I went along in the process um, fairly quickly 
And in terms of the, no, that makes sense for many people is, um, you know, one of the things that I don't think we hear enough about is the fact that all of us, um, and I, I teach on nonverbal communication, we as patients are more in tune to, and there's some research that supports this, um, we are more in tune to the nonverbal communication of the clinicians we, we see. And so the clinician may be more focused on the verbal message, on the clinical content, the medical jargon, but we as patients are very attuned and astute at really reading people's nonverbals, especially if we don't understand the words that are coming out of their mouth. You know, so what I'm hearing you say is, you know, trust what you're seeing and trust in what's happening and how you feel in that encounter with that person because you may be picking up really subtle nonverbal cues that are sending you very strong signals about whether this is really going to be a good relationship or not. Would that be a yeah. fair assessment? That's fair. You know, I have to say, Nicole, that I've attended a lot of conferences. I've attended a lot of workshops. Uh, Columbia University has a wonderful narrative medicine workshop. And um, the person who runs the, the program is an internist at a big hospital, a Presbyterian Hospital in New York City, and she says when she initially meets with a patient the first time, she never brings in a computer, she doesn't even have a pencil and piece of paper, she absolutely sits there with her hands almost folded, saying, shaking her head and asking more, you know, more questions, and really wants to get that initial, I'm looking at you, I'm listening to you, I'm not doing anything else right now. Um, and made it clear at, in the first workshop I attended that it was really up to clinicians to take this on themselves, yeah. that it's not going to come from any from any policy change, that clinicians have to make, make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, Rita, Rita Sharon's, I guess I'm assuming that's what you're talking about with her narrative medicine, yeah, and the program. And so for our listeners, narrative medicine is something that I teach and I'm, I'm a real advocate for as well. Um, and there's also the narrative part for the patients. You know, so again, it's how do we as patients ascertain, you know, what is or is not a good clinician? And, and I'm hearing you say really trusting your gut and, and um, what, you know, how, how the conversation is going. In terms of all of the medical information you got, you said really discerning between what is or is not good information. Do you have any tips about that? How you, how you, um, I would could say, went through, sort of weeded through all of this information you found? Yeah, I mean, definitely there are websites that are really great and there are websites that aren't really great. I, I read a lot of articles. People would send me articles. I talked to a lot of doctors. I talked to people who had cancer. I talked to people's spouses who, you know, had, had done a lot of research on their own. So it's really, it's, 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 it's a quest, you know. It's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, and I think you have to parse through that and say, but wait, I read this, but this article says this. So mm -hmm. which one's right? I'm not a doctor. I don't, I'm not conversant in this language. Tell me which one I need to know. So you correct. would take that information then to the physician and say, I read this and I read this, so help me understand exactly what this means and okay. Okay. Yeah, and it sounds like you found a community. You found other people, both patients. So sort of like the purpose of the podcast, you found patients, clinicians, other caregivers. You really found a community of people to to talk to to get different perceptions, um, perspectives, but also different um, bits of information. Yeah, and I have Nicole. I have no qualms about reaching out to people. I mean, I I allow us how. Hey, if you don't want to help me, fine. But here, I'm going to ask these questions. 
and I don't know if everybody sort of um, feels comfortable doing that, but you could just start out with one person that you know who, you know, was a patient advocate or somebody, a nurse, somebody that you know, just I need to start with somebody yeah. to get some information. Mm-hmm. Um, Got to start somewhere. We are at the end of our podcast. I want to ask if there's any other tidbits or insights that are sort of on the, the front of your, your mind that you'd like to, to finish with sharing with us. Yes, I, I do want to share with um, people that um, I never imagined myself being in this position. I think my husband, given his, pers- his personality, would have just said, I don't need to do this. I don't need the surgeries. I don't need the, you know, I don't need the hospitalizations. I just, he was a very quiet man. So I realized as I was writing my story or this story, our story, if you will, um, how, how much sort of internally it, this activated me. Um, and it was really in reaction to this being sick, but I really found out how much information I could gather um, just because I there was a fear involved and a worry and you know your loved one is sick you want to do as much as possible and that's what I could do mm-hmm. as a patient advocate I couldn't operate on him I couldn't make him better but I could do as much as possible to gather as much information in order to relay it to him um, and people who are concerned about his health so thank you hope so much Thank you. Thank you for being on this podcast and for sharing your story. Thank you. So we want to remind our listeners that uh, we would love for you to like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. You can also find us on castos.com. And we welcome your input, insights, questions, and of course, we're always looking for more people to interview. So please let us know what your thoughts are. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.